0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit Christpres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 3 verses 10 through 14. "For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Mary Payton. Indeed, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word inscripturated. We thank you for your word incarnated, the Lord Jesus, whom we celebrate this season and every day of our lives. Uh, We thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would delight in your ministry of illumination, that you would open our eyes, help us to see in your word that when we fail, Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf, mightily prevails, for we ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head, and the alpha and omega. Amen. For those of you who ran out of time this Christmas season before you could watch uh, the Peanuts, Christmas special, I thought I would do my part to save Christmas for you by letting you see Linus' uh, quote from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. He quotes the passage with such humble authority. But then at the end, it's kind of like a mic drop moment, isn't it, where he walks over to Charlie Brown, right? he walks over to Charlie Brown, and he has just saved Charlie Brown's sanity with the only thing that could save Charlie Brown's or yours or my soul. And that is the story of of Jesus Christ. Um, And here's the thing, that that little babe in the manger scene came to reign as king. As heartwarming as it is for us to see Linus recite Luke chapter 2 that way, trust me, it was scandalous. It was treasonous. It was nothing short of revolutionary and subversive to Caesar's self-appointed lordship as curiosity. you have to understand that, that little kid in the manger scene, he was a defiant kid that, that night. Uh, the majority of my uh, teaching time now, it seems, uh, at least in recent uh, months, has been devoted to the realm of apologetics. Apologetics at the upper school I teach with just a talented, wonderful uh, faculty of Bible teachers over there and, and I get to teach apologetics and uh, love what I do there with, with the students. I get to teach apologetics at the graduate level for Westminster Theological Seminary and Reformed Theological Seminary. And, and one of the things that, um, that I, I share with my students at, uh, at the academy is that we're learning apologetics not just to make a grade, but we're learning apologetics so we don't have to be afraid. Certainly not afraid of the uh, predictable neo-atheist arguments against Christianity that make the meme routes on Instagram, one of which goes like this. The only reason that people wind up Christian is because they were indoctrinated as kids to believe the Christmas story and all that goes along with it. Now, let me just say something to parents. Trust me, it is a God-honoring thing that we indoctrinate our children in the rich truths of Jesus Christ. So take heart. But that's one of the things that is said, the only reason anybody believes in Christianity to begin with is because they're indoctrinated as children in the Christian story and the Christmas story. Um, I love to introduce my students to Dr. Sarah Selviander, who is a PhD astrophysicist. She's a Trekkie. you don't like that, Wayne, right? She's a Trekkie. She's a gamer. She checks all the nerd boxes, which I think makes her so cool. This morning as I'm driving in, she tweets, and I just had to pull this up. She said this, my brother and I were raised atheists in a secular country. We both converted midway through our doctorates. My atheist dad had no idea how he managed to produce two Christian kids. She tweeted earlier this week, um, Charles Schultz, you know, the animator behind Peanuts, Charles Schultz insisted this scene, the scene that you just watched with the Linus, Charles Schultz insisted this scene stay in the show against the wishes of his animation partners and thank God he did. How many children were ministered to with a Linus touching reading of this passage from Luke? Then Sarah, Dr. Sylvia Ander goes on to say, it certainly planted a seed with me. Now, if we could transport back to 1965 with the Peanuts special aired and we could have stopped Linus and Charlie before he collected his scrubby little tree. You remember that scrawny tree that no one wanted, everyone made fun of, right? There's a little piece of that tree in all of us, right? Um, if we could have said, hey, Linus, that's great. What a beautiful story. You recited that so wonderfully. Now we understand what Christmas is all about, but would you tell us why it had to be as you recited from Luke 2? Why did it have to be that way? And Linus, profound theologian that he is, I think, would likely have quoted from another New Testament passage, Galatians 3, 10 to 14, which Mary Payton read for us just uh, a few minutes ago. And he just might have said, uh, David, the reason it had to be this way is because you have a misplaced reliance which required a costly redemption, and you need the gift that keeps on giving. Yes, he would have said it just like a properly trained Presbyterian preacher, three points. He would have said a misplaced reliance, a costly redemption, and the gift that keeps on giving. We see right here in this passage a misplaced reliance. It's not as heartwarming a passage in Galatians 3, 10 to 14, as Linus' recitation of Luke chapter 2. Gets in our grills right out of the gate. Instead of singing a carol— it pronounces a curse. Verse 10, cursed are all those who rely on the works of the law for their salvation. They're under a curse. He's quoting here, Paul, Deuteronomy 27, 26, where Moses takes the people of God up to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and he rehearses covenant blessings and covenant cursings with them, suggesting that the only way to avoid the, the curse of the covenant is by perfect obedience to Torah, perfect obedience to the law. Why? Because the law of God is the mirror, it is the mirror of his own eternal, infinite, uncompromising, all-pervasive holiness and righteousness of character. He can't adjust his law, he can't attenuate his law, he cannot accommodate his law, he cannot scale his law for size. He can no more adjust his holiness to accommodate our sin and our personal ethical opinions than he can cease to exist and Paul's point is if you're going to bank your, your salvation on your own obedience to the law of God to save you, then, then you screwed yourself so badly you can't even begin to imagine. The law of God, please understand, the law of God demands perfect, painstaking obedience 24-7 all the days of your life from birth to death with a perfect attitude of joy joy gratitude, submission, and fear of the Lord as you meticulously ensure that you do not violate a single aspect of the law by fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law and by managing to never transgress any part of the law, no matter how minuscule. I don't know how that's working out for you, but I can tell you (laughs) I, I am hopeless if my salvation hinges on that. And there's a sense in which it does hinge on that. And I'll get to that in just a second. But, but if it's up to me, look, I doubt anybody here uh, seriously is going to attempt to lay any claim to such perfect obedience to the law. Yet that's what the law of God requires. The law of God crushes lawbreakers. What we do is we modify the whole scheme uh, as if doing enough good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds will somehow get God satisfied with us and, and keep God satisfied with us. Maybe you say, well, wait, David, Paul didn't mean to use the word cursed, he meant to use the word curved because God grades on a curve. The problem with God grading on a curve is threefold. Number one, God can't. Number two, God won't. And number three, someone else has already blown the curve. And I'm going to say more about him in just a minute. But but I'll tell you this. um, A couple of months ago, I gave an apologetics exam to upper school students and uh, gave it, got it back, graded it. They knew they didn't do all that well on it. I knew they didn't do all that well on it. I'm passing them back out. And with one accord in great harmony and unity, all the students started crying out, grade on a curve, Mr. Filson, grade on a curve. I said, you want me to grade on a curve? I'll be happy to grade on a curve because I realized that, that many of you did not do very well. And so I'm gonna grade on a curve. I just need to let you know, since I'm grading on a curve, Someone in here has made a 100 on the exam, which resulted in weeping and lamenting and gnashing of teeth and flinging dust into the air, all that kind of thing. So there's no wonder why in verse 11, Paul says, look, it's evident, it's plain as day that no one is justified before God by their own personal obedience to the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul uses the word here in the Greek, dikaiotai to mean justified, it's the same word for righteousness. It's talking about the righteousness of God, the righteousness required to stand in His presence. Paul is saying that no one is justified justified or declared positionally righteous in the sight of God by our own obedience to the law of God. That's why the book of Galatians begins the way it does. If you read all of Paul's letters, they all begin, Paul speaking very pastorally, grace to you. They all begin that way. Grace is coming to you, grace to you. He gets right to the point in the book of Galatians because the house is on fire. He dispenses with those niceties and he gets right to the point and says, look, you've been bewitched. You have been tricked. You're being deceived. The gospel's at stake. The doctrine of justification by faith alone was at stake in Galatia. It's an important thing. It was Martin Luther who said that the the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin said it's the main hinge. Justification is the main hinge upon which the entire Christian religion turns. And then Paul says something in the text that requires we take a closer look. We've got to kind of lift the, lift the hood on the text here and, and look carefully because he says something that might be a little bit confusing. He, he says, look here at, at your text, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The law is not of faith. Verse 12, the one who does them shall live by them. What do you mean, Paul? I mean, even Linus would have to tap out there and calling his friend Calvin, not Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, but John Calvin who lived from 1509 to 64 and say, Calvin, help, help us out here. And so Calvin says something. My wife read through uh, the, the manuscript of my sermon last night. She said, David, whatever you do, when you get to that quotation from Calvin, please slow down. So I'm going to slow down here. John Calvin, listen, says this. The law justifies him who fulfills all its commands. Whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merit of works and rely on Christ alone to be justified by our own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. Paul is saying to the Galatian Christians, if you're going to turn to Torah obedience by insisting upon circumcision as necessary Uh, as a necessary means of salvation. You believe in Christ, but you also need to be circumcised. You know, Judaizers had slipped in among the church there at Galatia and said, okay, it's fine. You believe in Jesus, but you need to add to your belief in Jesus obedience, particularly the obedience of physical Jewish circumcision. And Paul says, look, if you do that, if you're going to go there, um, you have placed yourself unwittingly under the weight of the entirety of the law. You placed yourself under the curse of the unremittingly demanding law of God. Now remember, again, the context is confusion at Galatia over what it takes to be saved, to be justified. And Paul is is saying that faith cannot be mixed with works as a means of salvation. Now here's the thing, the law is not the problem. Please understand, the law of God is not the problem. The law is holy, it is good. The problem lies in David Filson's heart. The problem lies in our hearts, right? Our sinful hearts. And it leaves us in a place of having to ask, will we be saved by doing or by believing? Will we be saved by doing or by believing? If the former, then all hope is already gone, game over. Either we will trust in our own obedience to the law or Christ's obedience to the law on our behalf. If the latter, then we are saved and we are free to obey the law, not as meriting our salvation, but as a way of manifesting that we've been saved, and not as a means of earning our justification, but as a means of evidencing that indeed Christ has justified us. Obeying the law, not as a means of deserving our positional righteousness before God, but as a means of demonstrating practically what is indelibly ours positionally. it required a costly redemption to get us there to to this gospel as I said this this passage is not as heartwarming as the one Linus read for us it gets in our face no carol is sung a curse is pronounced and talk of death and a tree but Paul doesn't have in mind the kind of tree that has lights festooned upon it and tinsel and garland and Ornaments, but a tree splattered with blood. You see, when we look at the deeper levels of what Christmas really means, uh, we see those tiny hands of that little baby. Those tiny hands would one day be treacherously hammered. and, And Mary's arms, once holding her boy baby, would one day reach out. If only she could take her mangled man down off that cross. You see, the cradle was the first step to the cross. Because of our sin in the garden... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, our first parents, were removed from the garden, not for punishment, but for protection. Now, lest they take and eat of the tree of life and live forever. You say, what's wrong with living forever? Isn't that, in some sense, the goal? They would have taken and eaten of the tree of life and been confirmed in their fallen, destitute, rebellious, sinful, and and dead condition. They They would have been confirmed in that fallen state. They were taken out for protection. Punishment for their sin and ours would have to come. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9, 22, Leviticus 17, 11, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Paul says we've been redeemed here in the text of Galatians chapter 3, Christ, verse 13, redeemed us. And he uses a Greek word here for redeemed, the, the word exagerison, and it speaks of literally buying out of the hands of of another person, buying out of the hands of another person. And and it was sometimes used uh, in in Paul's day in the language of the slave market where a slave would be brought off of the slave block, purchased off of the slave block and given their freedom because of a price having been paid for them. And, And Paul says, Christ has become that payment for us, right? He has redeemed us. He made payment by becoming a curse. Let that sink in. That cooing baby was a cursed baby. The only one who could ever keep the law of God is the one who bore the curse for lawbreakers like us. The punishment for my sin and your sin would fall on that scrappy little kid in the manger. He was a defiant one, that kid a defiant one. That, that tender babe was on a mission to do something defiant to the powers of sin and darkness. Look, if you will, at the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we see, we see the mission of Christ. We see the defiance of, of that Christmas babe. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death— he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's you. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted tempted so merry christmas christ presbyterian church you need not fear we we don't have to ultimately be afraid of the things that strike fear at the very core of our souls jesus came to destroy him who has the power of death that is the devil and to deliver you from your bondage to your fear of death he came to destroy he came to deliver and you need to take this into the new year with you you have a defiant king who will not back down You need to let him assault your anxieties. You need to let Jesus assault your fears. You know, the video we just saw of Linus, did any of you notice, right? Peggy Metro pointed this out to me in the first service. Did any of you notice when Linus dropped his security blanket? As he's reciting Luke 2, and he's holding that security blanket that he never lets go of? But there was a point in the video, go back and watch it, when did Linus let go of his security blanket, fear not, fear not, and he let it drop. <laughs> in some ways, that's, that's the whole point of what Paul is trying to say here in Galatians 3, 10 to 14, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid and work yourself into a ladder thinking you've got to do something to get God's attention and keep him satisfied with you. There's a reason that Jesus said In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. Really what's offered to us here is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, last week Scott said that uh, he starts listening to Christmas music in August. Remember that? (laughs) That's a little extreme, honestly. I mean... I start listening around mid-September. And I like seeing all the decorations come out. It's, It's never too early for me. I like to see them all come out, Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas. I like to see all the decorations come out. And please understand, I can take in stride, trust me, I can take in stride and absorb all of the judgy comments of all of you after Thanksgiving only legalists with great ease. You know, oh, you shouldn't put decorations up until after Thanksgiving. You shouldn't be listening to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Listen, I'm, I'm free in Christ. I don't have to deal with your <laughs> legalism. Now, I don't know, though, if you're like me in, in this regard. Um, I go into a funk after Christmas. That's not good. It's not even funny. When the decorations start coming down, I start to spiral. And here's the thing, right? The official 12 days of Christmas go through January 5th. I say we leave everything up. But we love this kind of thing. We love the lights. We love the decorations. We love it because we love to get gifts and we love to give gifts. We love the anticipation of what is ours and is waiting for us. In this text, verse 14, Merry Christmas, here's your gift. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And this is the gift that keeps on giving because you were in union with Christ by trusting and believing in him. The blessing of Abraham is yours. What is that blessing? It is that the covenant gospel of God would be for every tribe, tongue, and people that all nations would receive the Holy Spirit. You ever thought about the fact that in a very real sense, Mary's pregnancy was prophetic of Pentecost? Pentecost. Because you are every tribe, tongue, and nation. You are the far-flung corners of the globe. You are, you are the nations, right? We are. Whatever your ethnicity, right? I know a little of mine. I'm part Scottish, part English, part Irish, part Dutch, part redneck, part Cherokee. That's me, all right? I got all that in me. Whatever you got in you, we are the nations, but we are the children of Abraham. We are, Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God, because we are the church, and we are the church because we are Israel. That's that's the theology of the of the New Testament, the gospel that Abraham had preached to him. And yes, Galatians four verse eight says that Abraham, all the way back in Genesis twelve to seventeen, had the gospel, the same gospel you and I believe, had the gospel preached to him all the way back. In Genesis, Abraham believed that gospel and he was declared justified, positionally righteous and accepted by God. We see that in Genesis 15, 6, in Romans 4, verse 9 and 22, and in Galatians 3, 6. So Merry Christmas, you just opened up the present, the gift of justification. And as Russ said on Christmas Eve night, just a few nights ago, it's what you need more than anything, whether you realize it or not, is to be right before God. The righteousness that is yours was won for you by Christ. So here's the thing. He's class, the one that blew the curve. He's the one that scored a 100 on the law of God. He's the one that's blown the curve by perfectly obeying the law, but he obeyed the law perfectly for you so that you don't have to hold out hope that God might grade on a curve and let you in. He wouldn't, and besides, you and I are infinitely below the curve anyway. So maybe it could be a new Christmas carol among us that we could sing this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And if you're justified, it's because you're regenerated. You've been brought from death to life, from darkness to light. You've been made alive with the first touch of Christ. And as a justified person, you live. Jesus says in John 10, I have come, not that they may have the redundant, but the abundant life. You live because of this truth, because of faith. Faith in what? Faith in the alive from the dead Savior, Christ Jesus you see, the object of our faith is not our faith. The object of our faith is our faithful Savior. And Paul is quoting here Habakkuk 2, verse 4 the righteous will live, the just, the justified will live by faith. All the way back in the Old Testament, from Abraham to Habakkuk, this truth is deeply rooted in Scripture. We live, we enjoy eternal life by faith. But here's where it gets deep the life, the life that is in view here in the Greek is Zesatai. It is eternal, eschatological, future, forever, for all eternity life. But it is not like a present that is wrapped up and you can't touch it yet. It is yours now. The future life promised to you invaded the present and is yours. Eternal life is your present possession. You already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that's why all this came about, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. He's a spirit who illumines your understanding of the Bible and helps you understand what the Word says, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. He is the spirit of assurance, Romans 8, 15 to 17, by whom we cry, Abba, Papa, Father. He's a spirit of illumination, a spirit of assurance. He is a spirit of adoption, Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. Turn a page and look at what Paul says. This is incredible. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Is it any wonder we sing here at Christ Presbyterian, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. He is the spirit of illumination, the spirit of assurance, the spirit of adoption. He's the spirit who helps us pray, Romans 8, 26 to 27, when we don't know how to pray as we ought. Have you ever been there? Have you ever prayed what feels like a confusing prayer? I love what Thomas Brooks an Old Puritan once said, that God, the Holy Spirit, knows how to pick sense out of a confused prayer. That's good news. He helps us when we don't know how to pray as, as we ought with groanings too deep for words. He is the spirit of resurrection. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through a spirit who dwells in you. See, here's the Christmas gift to you is that the very body you're setting in right here, right now, that very body is someday going to be raised incorruptible, no longer susceptible to sickness and sin and decay and weakness and fragility. That very body is going to be raised conformed to the resurrection body of Christ, fit, fit for forever Christmas celebration in the new heavens and the new earth. The reality is whenever we say Merry Christmas— we ought to also hear the echo of happy Easter. It's like Christmas every day. if, If Christmas is the celebration of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus dwelling with man, John 1, verse 14, then think about this, the spirit of Christ indwelling you and me is Christ forever with us. It's the gift that keeps on giving, right? Christ indwelling you as the promise of eschatological hope that we will one day partake of the tree of life, Revelation twenty two fourteen, 14, and we will be conformed forever, <clears throat> no longer susceptible to sin and sickness and all of those things, confirmed forever, sinless, whole, healthy, made perfect. See, here's the reality. What this passage is teaching is what the whole of Scripture teaches us is that you are truly human now, but you're not fully human yet. You're truly human now, but you're not fully human yet. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, what eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered the imagination of the hearts of man, the things the Lord has in store for those who love him. Or as a group of theologians once said, Buckman Turner Overdrive, you ain't seen nothing yet. Merry Christmas, Christ Presbyterian Church. In the meantime, welcome. Christmas supper is going to continue right here. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that these words are true, that your steadfast love uh, never ends. Your mercies are new every morning. And so, Father, we thank you that even now uh, we come to celebrate a feast spread for us by one laid in a feeding trough, a manger, because he was given to us to be food from the beginning. It's only fitting he would feed us now. Oh, we thank you for all these things, and we offer this prayer In the matchless name of that defiant king, our Lord Jesus, amen.